Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to live my life, putting purpose over profit. Too many fallen soldiers, too many slain prophets. Eyes on the prize, yeah, I gotta watch it. Agents amongst us, get your hand out my pocket. I'm sick with the pet. Brothers and sisters are sick in the pet. Oppressed by the man, attacked by the clan. America's plan, depression sets in. People becoming so hopeless. Said we can't breathe, they still choke us. They put the body cam on, it's either turn off or out of focus. Yeah, another death, another life. They pull the trigger, no thinking twice. Cops be wildin', the killing youth. The new Jim Crow, a different noose. It's the beast, it's the beast, mark of the beast. Cease and desist, increase the peace. Move in silence, don't make a sound. But when they come, stand your ground. R.I.P. to all the martyrs. Say your prayer, Heavenly Father. Black lives matter, black lives matter. Welcome back, everyone, to the Creative Gourd. We have a very special show today. What's going on, Professor Israel? All is well, good brother. How you doing, man? Everything is good. Just uh, getting ready for the summer. It's going to be a busy summer, so it should be great. Are you in the gym? You in the gym? Trying to get there. Trying to get there every day and every way. Just trying to get better and better. Shout out to KG. Maybe he'll come back and uh, join us and talk about some more fitness and health but in this episode of the creative gourd we have an amazing guest that professor yisrael connected with and we're going to discuss mental health so do you want to intro the guest professor absolutely so you know i think we're very fortunate tonight we're in for a treat um let me take my time with this introduction i think it was back in what i was calling the sprummer of 2020 because it was like spring and summer which really melded together to the point where it just felt like one long reality show really um, and you think about all the things that were happening back in 2020. You think about the, um, the the murder of George Floyd, amongst other people, which served as, a, I guess, in this case, maybe a pseudo uh, racial rec- reckoning um, in the moment, because it hasn't even been two years yet. It hasn't even been two years yet since that's happened. And a lot of folks are already um, fatigued, exhausted. Um, and a lot of folks are like, oh, my God, are we still talking about it? Uh, why are we still talking about race? Um, aren't we over it? Um, exactly. So I think there was that one like- moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I was going to add to that. It seems like even the corporations are, you know, they're they're trying they're trying to get new ideas on how to capitalize off of that as well, which is interesting. Absolutely. So everyone is a money grab in a lot of different ways. Um, even when you start to see the population of or um, oversaturation of diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives at places that you know you have to question whether or not it's performative or if it's actually uh, something that has teeth whether it's policy, whether it's practices that they have. Um, but all these things need to be vetted moving forward. Um, but in this moment at the institution that I currently work at, um, I, like I said, I serve in a diversity, equity, and inclusion role in some capacity. And I receive emails all the time, all the time from a number of different um, folks who are in this space, whether it's providing counseling services, whether it's providing diversity, equity, and inclusion services. Um, and You know, you have to vet them carefully because again, however, um, although they're trying to provide these services, you have to really take some things with a grain of salt or vet them thoroughly to make sure it's not a money grab. 
uh, to make sure that it's going to serve your 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 populace. And for me, I was really, really keeping my finger on the pulse of my community to see exactly what the needs were, uh, being responsive to the needs. And those needs were a lot of folks were, were dealing with trauma. A lot of folks were dealing with pain. A lot of folks were dealing with fear of the unknown, anxiety. And we didn't really know um, where to turn to to start. Um, but along came a godsend. I received the email from um, our guest, uh, Simone Golden, um, who sent an email that really spoke to the needs of our community. And when I tell you it was exactly what we needed and more in a time that was desperately um, one where folks were just grasping for help, um, grasping for folks to provide a different perspective, particularly those who might um, come into our space with a fresh eyes, but also still have a critical lens um, for equity, justice, um, mm. also still be authentic, realizing that we're all human, but we also, while we share the human condition, have different lived experiences depending on how we show up and how we identify. Facts. Um, so entered Simone Golden and Golden TLC, and I, I'll let her um, definitely introduce her business more than I can. Um, but we were so fortunate for her to partner with us and take our faculty and staff um, of color uh, through a number of different talks and discussions where she really just listened to us and um, helped us wrestle with the times that we were facing. Uh, she also lent her services towards our upper school students, um, as well as our middle school students, and also our families of color. Wow. Um, our families of color. So she really came in at a pinch um, and provided us with all the needs that um, were, were very present, were very present. And you know, we, I'm fortunate that we still have a relationship and still have this connection professionally um, to continue to build out moving forward. So much so that folks have continued to tell me that they enjoy their time um, with Simone. And in fact, our head of school was like, you know what, maybe we should think about reaching back out because I think some faculty and staff might be in need. Um, so without further ado, um, yeah, I, I would love for folks to meet Simone Gold. Welcome, Simone. Thank you for joining us. Hello. That was a very beautiful uh, introduction. I will. I receive all of that. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for having me. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And you know what? It, it didn't even occur to me um, when we were having a conversation that this was the start of uh, uh, National Mental Health Awareness Day. I mean, National Mental Health Awareness. I, I did. I. It did not occur to me. I remember last yeah. year we did a program um, in May, but it did not occur to me. So it's just. Again, the stars align. Yep, yep, it does. And there, there's so many like months of different things, right? It's hard to keep up sometimes, but I think so, social media always has enough hashtags where you're going to figure it out one way or another. Absolutely. <laughs> so I wanted, I wanted to um, throw it to you, Josh, because I have tons of questions, tons of questions, but uh, I would like you to get us started and I'll follow up. Absolutely. So I was very impressed by the the content I saw from you guys from your your uh, institution before. I thought that that content was great. And just doing some research out of curiosity because, you know, I, I saw what Simone was doing and I was like, wow, look at, you know, look at these videos. She's giving away a lot of uh, healing strategies for people of color, which I think is amazing. So thank you for doing that in the community, Simone. So just out of curiosity, what inspired you to walk this path and devote your life and your expertise to this cause? Um, well, I am a black woman. 
So, <laughs> you know, Mikael was talking about our lived experiences and I, I'm a social worker by trade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a clinician and I've worked primarily, I've, I've worked in all types of social work, but my primary role within the last 10, 12 years or so, so has been a clinician within a private educational company. Um, so I'm a clinical director, overseeing mental health services in Philadelphia and surrounding school systems. It's primarily black and brown kids and families, right? Um, And over the years, I was actually thinking about it before I came on today, like, have I ever had a black supervisor? Hmm. And I don't think I ever have, ever, in any capacity, in any of the roles that I've served in any job, any social work job. Wow. And, you know, I'm so thankful for the experiences that I've had. I've learned so much. But I honestly have to say that my learning journey came from the people that I serve, not necessarily, you know, any kind of supervisory roles, you know, or guidance that I've had. And a lot of that, you know, cultural competence plays into a lot of that. So what led me here? You know, just just being a Black woman, you know, I'm on the other side of things. So I've I've walked through life and experienced what it's like to want to have, you know, a Black provider, right? Um, But also having been in this clinical role and seeing the needs of the students and the families that I work with and seeing how, you know, great it is for them when I walk into a room and they're like, just the other day, actually, my the principal at my school, who I love, was like, um, one of the students wants to come meet whoever Miss Golden is. And I walked in and she was like, you're a black woman? And I, and I was <laughs> like, I am. And she was like, come sit down next to me. And, and, you know, those little types of connections go so far. Um, and it's not to say that that you know white folks or other people can't make connections with students but you know it's one of those like unsaid things it's something you can't explain it's it's the nod when we walk by each other you know on the street so the experience of having these black and brown students and families often being served by corporations and institutions and um, systems that are led by white people, right? Mm-hmm. And while while some are very well-intentioned, there's a disconnect. And I, f- I found over the years that I was becoming more and more frustrated because no matter how much I may have control over programming in my particular school or, you know, insight into certain things within a company, I can't control things the way that I want to control them, right? Mm -hmm. Things can't, the message that I ultimately want to send, you always still have to play the game of professionalism, right? I can't, Mm -hmm. I've gotten to the point in my career where I am so much more confident in myself where I can I'm much more closer to showing up as my true and authentic self. But I think that as a Black woman, as Black men, we all know there's this fine line 
we mm. are not showing up a hundred percent as our true authentic selves, right? Mm. There's 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 this fine line you always gotta walk. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, what am I gonna do? Right? I'm a single parent, so there's this there's this fear of like stepping outside of you know a cushy salaried position and you know thinking about starting something of your own but you know you're either going to do it or you're not and um i decided to take the leap so this is actually my my final year i'm finishing out this school year and then going full force into you know my passion now of of running this mental health coaching practice and um, being able to dictate how and what I put out there. Hmm. Awesome, wow. awesome. That's, that's amazing. And thank you for doing that because as I'm sure you all know, and as Professor Israel knows, we definitely need that in the community in abundance. And I feel like to Dr. Izzy's point, black representation is so important because I feel like when we have increased uh, diversity and the mental health space, then I feel like our mental health as a community is only going to improve. Because mm -hmm. as I'm sure we all know, it's not necessarily a, a common thing in our community, as we discussed with Dr. Ashley Oliver as well, for us to even broach the sub subject, even talk about it, or even talk about it in a in a familiar setting, even with uh, your, your social network, your friends, your family. Sometimes you actually do need to speak to a professional like yourself who who can guide you to the right uh, pathways to, you know, healthier spaces, we'll, we'll get into later. So I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of everyone. And Professor Izzy, do you have a question? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, um, thank you for sharing that insight. And thank you for um, allowing us a little bit of a window into your why, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, thinking about this being Mental Health Awareness Month and thinking about you know, I was doing my research trying to see, you know, a lot of organizations might have their own theme or their own approach or their own lens um, or whatever they're trying to amplify for the month. Um, and I looked at a few different ones and the ones that popped up that stuck out to me is back to basics, um, together for mental health, and then hashtag break the stigma. Uh, mm -hmm. When you think about those things, particularly as it pertains to the black community, um, particularly as it pertains to representation and being in front of a person who gets you, understands you, appreciates you, knows you, therefore you can automatically get into the treatment as opposed to having to build um, this identity of someone who's a human being first and foremost, and then one who's um, worthy of being in that same space. Talk to me about what you're lifting up, what you're amplifying, what your hopes are for this month um, in the backdrop of all these things that people are pushing forward. Yeah, so I think that the the idea of stigma is huge with when we talk about mental health specifically within the black and brown communities because it's been such a barrier to treatment for our folks. Um, you know, the ancestral trauma that comes along with being a black person um, is something that a lot of us don't even understand. Um, you know, which is why people are trying to keep critical race theory like out of <laughs> schools, right? They don't want mm -hmm. us to be able to understand why some of the traumas from years ago have, you know, come through generations and still affect us in different ways now. Um, 
So, you know, talk, I think stigma is a huge thing and having conversations, just platforms like this, even because I like people to understand that, you know, when we talk about mental health care and mental health treatment, it doesn't mean that you have to go see a therapist, right? That, that doesn't have to be the ultimate goal. That doesn't have to be the first step. The first step can be, I'm going to open this podcast. I saw this on somebody's Instagram story and I'm going to click on it and I'm going to watch it, right? And I'm going to listen. I don't have to participate and do anything, but maybe I'm going to be willing to hear a different perspective. And just the idea that people like you guys are are providing these types of platforms for these discussions to happen with people that look like us, right? Because I'm, you know, I have braids and I have tattoos and I have mm -hmm. nails and I'm, you know, I'm not walking in with like a lab coat on. I'm, <laughs> you know, but I, one of the things that I like to do, one of the reasons you know, why I wanted to become an entrepreneur is because I want to be my true authentic self. I, I, I want to be able to show up as who I am. Um, and I think us being able to do that is one simple way to start to break a little barrier down that exists, especially with our younger population, right? Because it there's, there's this subset of us that um, I think have this aversion to therapy more so than others. You know, our our young black males who are, you know, stereotypically labeled as uh, you know, the kid on the street, my kids that are in my behavioral programs, um, those are kids that that it is it not not even that it's not cool to go to therapy. It's just not even something that enters into your realm mm -hmm. of thought, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that I, like, my kid who's, who's selling drugs on the corner doesn't have the luxury or the privilege of thinking about going to therapy. That's not even something that exists in his realm of thinking, right? But to introduce ways for, you know, this subset of our population to understand that there are avenues for you to start to have these conversations, or at least maybe the first step is to listen to these conversations. You can listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. You can watch TV shows that talk about different um, topics. The first step for, for people doesn't have to be that you're actually making a phone call and going and sitting in the office to talk to somebody, you know? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. And I appreciate what you were saying about, you know, going out on your own with with entrepreneurship, because I feel like another reason why we need diversity in the in the profession. So, you know, like doctors, lawyers, accountants, having those having more representation there actually increases the black entrepreneurship in our community. And it, it allows us to to give back in a and make an impact in a in a much larger way, which I appreciate. Yeah, for sure. And there's a there's just a different level of like connectivity too, right? And and it's not with everybody cuz again, I always say we're not a monolith. Every black person is not well-intentioned out here, right? <laughs> but there's a a much stronger likelihood that, you know, this black therapist or lawyer or whoever, you know, is coming from a perspective where maybe there's there's I'm not coming from a place of judgment. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm coming from a place of understanding. Um, I'm coming from a place 
of giving you the benefit of the doubt. Um, I'm not going to judge you on how you, how, your physical appearance when you show up. Um, it's these little things that, that go a long way with someone being able to receive treatment, whatever that treatment is, whether it's legal, you know, medical, mental health, whatever it is, if I'm able to trust my provider, then I'm going to be able to fully receive whatever it is that they're trying to provide for me. Absolutely. And to, that's a fantastic point because we understand that there's going to be plenty of microaggressions, if you will, mm -hmm. from if it's, if, uh, if we're not at the same persuasion, mm -hmm. so that can lead to a professional being unprofessional. Cause when you're right. bringing in those, you know, microaggressions, how can you actually be, you know, fair and impartial and actually, you know, actually take in what the person is going through and be empathetic and then have your professional guidance. If you would just assume based on the, you know, the cover of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, microaggressions can shut things down quick. I know at least for myself, you know, somebody can say the wrong thing just slightly the wrong thing. And my entire, you know, mood will just, I, 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 you know, we're good at not showing it on the mm -hmm. outside, mm -hmm. but the way that I'm receiving anything that they were attempting to give is completely changed now. And that, you know, microaggressions is a whole nother conversation, but um, to your point, yeah, it's, it's, and oftentimes again, People are well-intentioned, but, you know, the reason why I think it's important that we have, um, and I'll get into this when I talk about what I'm, my business, but the reason we have, you know, professional developments and trainings on these types of conversations, like microaggressions, mm -hmm. not just for Black and Brown people who are receiving them, they can give them too, but I'm an advocate for, for us. So mm -hmm, <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. on that side of things, but also being a, one of my goals is, I was just talking to my girlfriend about this, who is in it, uh, works in higher education. And we were talking about, you know, being able to create a space for white folks, white professors, you know, in higher education, I can't, give a professional development or training to them around, you know, sensitive topics, like un uncomfortable topics like privilege and, you know, microaggressions and things like that, unless I'm willing to create a safe enough space for them to feel that they can let down their guards and, and talk freely. So, you know, in order for me to truly be an advocate for my folks, I have to understand how I can be of service to these folks. And it's a it's it's been a learning curve for me because, you know, my this is my passion over here, but I can't just work over here. The world does not exist just over here because the purpose of what I'm doing is to be able to teach and empower and educate um, and encourage my people to understand that you can and deserve to exist over here. And this mm -hmm. is how we need to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, you can send the white folks my way, 10%, uh, 10%. <laughs> um, no, no, I appreciate that. And it's, it's real, it's 100% real. And just looking at this question and building upon this question, Right, thinking about 
it's tough being a human being right now these days. Um, mm -hmm. It's tough being an educator these days. It's tough being a student these days. Um, I was fortunate enough to have um, this organization called Game 7 um, mm -hmm. come and run an, uh, a, a game day at our school. Mm -hmm. um, and they came and ran a game day at our school. And um, it was a wonderful time. Uh, and one of the things that um, popped up that a lot of folks reflected um, was this one statement that happened in one workshop. And the statement went something like this. It was, um, we often talk about post-traumatic stress, um, but we don't talk about post-traumatic growth. Mm. Um, that being said, when you think about this whole tension between social and emotional learning, trauma-informed pedagogy, but then also this call for grit and resiliency mm -hmm. um, through the lens of healing, um, mm -hmm. how do we as educators, how do we as students, how do we as people find ways to, one, acknowledge that there needs to be intervention for whatever's happening, and then find ways to soothe, heal, be resilient, or develop the muscle um, to say, you know what? That might have knocked me down, but here's here's how I can get back up. Mm -hmm. oh, I mean, simply put, you have to meet people where they are, right? So the same as I would in a therapy session, you know, we have to think about students or you know your your staff or whoever we're talking about. And just what you said, understanding that people are human beings. So while we may be able to help a group of people, you know, develop um a shared goal or or you know help them to identify a path that they may be on um life happens right and it it's gonna knock people off that that path and you know we want to be there as encouragers but you know that that journey of growth is not a linear one Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's like this. We're mm -hmm. constantly, you know, we're going to go up, but we're going to take a dip down. We're going to coast for a while. So, you know, as an educator, as a leader, that is something that if 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 we're not able to understand that, then we're not going to be able to keep up with the, the growth of, you know, whoever it is that we're trying to lead. So, you know, having and showing grace to our students that, and, and it's tricky because, you know, there's there's a, a, a subset of younger people that exist nowadays that are in this like weird pocket of privilege where it's like, you know, you, you um, like we want you to understand that, you know, we're here to support you. And if you're not feeling something, tell us, but at the same time, we don't want to enable you to 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 whine, right? <laughs> and there's there's like this subset of of kids these days that are like, mm -hmm. well, I feel like relax, like so, you know, it's it's a tricky thing to navigate sometimes. To it's like parenting, right? Mm -hmm. it, there's there's no like handbook on how to get it exactly right, but if I think if you lead with this idea of I'm going to meet this person where they're at, let me see where they come to me today. If they're coming to me here, then I'm going to meet them here. And, you know, I'm going to go in my toolbox to see what it is that I need to provide them in this moment. Um, so it, it's hard to really give like a, 
uh, exact answer mm -hmm. because you know it's it's so individ individualistic for um, you know for people. But yeah, I think I think just making sure that we realize at the end of the day and always keep in mind that that people are human, people are individuals. Um, people are not always going to do what we want them to do the way that we want them or the way mm -hmm. that we may have anticipated that they would do things and to accept that that's okay. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. And in your experience, Simone, what are the reoccurring factors specifically affecting the mental health of people of color in your experience? Um, well, I always go back to ancestral trauma because I feel like that's the root of everything. And a lot of us don't understand what that means, but to simplify it, I think you could say like, look at your own families, right? And look at the patterns within your own families. Hmm. And there's always things within our own families we can say like, that's messed up. Like <laughs> we shouldn't have been doing that or, this person does this and, you know, they, they messed up their child. You know, there's patterns within our families. And oftentimes if we look back, especially when we when we get to be adults, we look back and say, like, you know what? They did the best they could with what they knew. And the further and further you go back in our generations, that idea of they did the best they could because that's what they knew, you start to see that the tools that we were working with were less and less, you know, the further you go back because we didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any mm -hmm. rights. We didn't have any stuff. We didn't have any freedom, right? So even though we are generations away from that time, you know, the effects of that, you know, the whole idea of post-traumatic slave syndrome and, and mm -hmm. all of these things, are very real today. And um, it's the idea of critical race theory and, and teaching it is so important, not, not for shaming, like I don't even think about white people when I think about critical race theory. <laughs> I think about what it does for young black kids to be able to gain a perspective mm -hmm. of like, oh, okay, now I, like I'm starting to put things together a little differently. Um, like maybe I just don't have a chip on my shoulder, but maybe it is because of this. You know, it allows it allows us to consider things from a different perspective. Um, so I forget what the original question even was. I'm going off on a tangent, but yeah, um, it's 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 something that I feel like as a therapist, um, I grapple with. I grapple with all the time. It's 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 a it's a difficult thing um, to try to navigate, um, but it's it's a reason. I think it, that's the reason why we need more and more people of color within mm -hmm. the field um, to be able to have a voice in different rooms. Because if there's not, it I mean it it would be better if it was more than one of us. But <laughs> if there's not one of us at least in a room um there's not even anyone to object about anything right there's not mm -hmm. anyone to provide a different perspective um there's not anyone to challenge anything um 
And then again, to have someone in a room who is in a space where they're comfortable enough to even speak up, because it took me a long time, you mm -hmm. know, in my career to feel comfortable enough to be able to challenge, you know, authority or a boss or administrations. Um, but to have people that are willing to use their voice um, is, is going to be a huge factor in like some of those systemic change type of conversations. Absolutely, because I'm thinking about it and what you're alluding to with the diversity in the mental health space, because I feel like when things like that happen, we'll reduce things like black on black crime, black on black violence that will have the context because, OK, I don't have a, a chip on my shoulder. So perhaps, uh, you know, when you have a, a developing mind, you'll make um, assumptions that may may be fallacies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't have to view things as a crab in the barrel mentality. We're mm -hmm. we're all in the same team here. Mm -hmm. So and then then I also think like imagine if it was, you know, state sponsored. You know, if I'm looking at the situation in, you know, in uh, Eastern Europe and I'm like, "Listen, if the country has 30 billion just to give to Ukraine, mm -hmm. is there any reason why we can't invest that in the black community, especially in mental health and healing which would uh lower things like crime. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it, it's such a hard conversation because when you have, when you're making those kind of decisions at such a high level without the right people in the room to help make the decisions, you we know money's wasted all the time creating mm. programs. There's, there's all kinds of programs out here that exist, but the efficacy of these programs is like nil because just what you were talking about, you know, when we started the show about, you know, there, there's, a, it's a money grab, you know, there's people out here in, in all types of arenas that are creating things to serve whatever, you know, the it thing is that it's at the time. Mm -hmm. Mikael, you were talking about, you know, when we had originally connected, it was during the George Floyd time. And all of a sudden, all of these companies, big and small, have this huge push to provide, you know, support for their their staff of color and and you know have all this DEI stuff and um you know and Mikael, we had that conversation. You were like, yo, jump on this now yes. because there's money out here. Yes. And I was like, yes. I was like, yeah, I appreciated that. I was like, that yes, you know, take advantage of it. But it's interesting to see now, you know, how that's kind of fluctuating. There are some people who are continuing with it and there are other people who are like, all right, that box is checked. Mm -hmm. Right. And nice. it's, it's, it, I want to come in and try to challenge some of these um, companies to say like, okay, you did that, but what, what, what now? Like mm -hmm. what's happening now? What are you doing to continue this conversation, to continue this support, to address these needs? Because that's not going to be the last time, you know, the the country blows up like this. This happens mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. No, I really appreciate that for a number of different reasons. One, um, your approach is one that I I am 100% on board with because I have the same, same approach in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of DEI um, initiatives, programs, conferences, whatever, 
for lose me and my interests once it becomes very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it needs to be responsive because again, we're not a monolith. We're all different. We have to take in um, context. And mm-hmm. by context, we have to take in equity, which means responding to the needs. Mm-hmm. What is the need in the moment? It's not equality. Mm-hmm. It's equity. What is the need? Mm-hmm. Um, and you getting back to the root of it, talk about ancestral trauma, talking about all those pieces really identifies the root cause of many issues. And then you can build and triage to see exactly what's happening from that perspective. But you're talking to the person, like you said, being very individualistic, you're talking to the person across from you, you connect with Mm -hmm. the person across from you, you have your knowledge, you have your expertise, but you're also tailoring to the person in front of you, as opposed to just regurgitating all of your knowledge and all of your expertise as if it's one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I really appreciate your approach to the work that you do. Uh, my question for yeah. you is when we think about um, self-care, I think we've had this conversation before about self-care with uh, Dr. Ashley Oliver, who was on the show before, um, but I've seen a lot of folks talking about radical self-care. When you hear the term radical self-care, but who's building up a business, um, and I want to ask you a question later on too, but particularly mother of a black child, black daughter. Right. What does radical self-care mean to you? I don't know. Listen, <laughs> when I, the, the whole idea of self-care is subjective, right? Mm. Self-care can be whatever to whomever. For me, it, it depends on like, you know, if I if I did a little needs, if everybody did a, a needs assessment of themselves, right? you're going to score higher in other areas than me and and you and than him. And we kind of have to look at where our individual needs lie. Um, and what are the things that are interfering with our ability to fully function as our full selves? So that may change from day to day, from, from week to week, right? Um, from environment to environment. So us really getting to, and you can do this in therapy or you could do this with yourself, but I think the first step before you go and say, I'm, I'm going to, you know, engage in self-care, whatever that means, you first have to take a step back to really understand what is it that I need and why do I need it? Mm -hmm. So I may need to, you know, it may be as simple as like on a Sunday night, reflecting back on the week and saying like, okay, the days that I had good days, what was happening? The days that I didn't have good days, what was happening? Did I not sleep well? Was I around certain people? Do certain things trigger me? And, you know, make a list, make a list, the good stuff, the bad stuff. And, and you know, take inventory and then kind of assess that for yourself to determine, okay, what do I feel like I need to be able to move the things in this column over to this column? Hmm. And there's not a one size fits all in terms of what will allow you to do that. So for me, maybe maybe self-care is the fluffy stuff, like going to get a massage or get my nails done, get my head, that kind of stuff. But for some people, you know, it, it might be things like making sure that I engage in community service and, you know, feel that I'm somehow giving back to my community. I may not feel like I'm doing enough to use my voice, you know, to empower my people. 
there are a lot of people that feel, especially during the time that we connected, Mikael, mm -hmm. that felt like, I don't know how to help. I feel mm -hmm. powerless. I don't know how to use my voice. I felt like that at times, you know, and, you know, radical self-care for them might be the people that say, you know what, forget this. I'm driving down to, to DC, I'm driving to Detroit, I'm driving to wherever, and I'm marching, and I'm getting arrested, right? And mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. allowed them to feel like this for me is radically caring for myself because now I feel like I've done something. I've done something that's forward moving for things that matter. Um, because when you're watching these things on the television and we're enduring all of this secondary trauma, you feel very powerless sitting at home watching these things on the television. So when I hear terms like radical self-care, you know, I think about things that are larger than myself. I don't think for me, anything within my day-to-day -day life requires radical self-care. And I mean, that's probably, and that's probably because I've learned to manage you, right. And, and get myself to a space where I don't have high highs and low lows. Um, mm -hmm. But when I think about this idea of radical self-care, I think about the things that would make me feel like I don't have control. And within our community, I immediately think of those those larger issues. Mm -hmm. And just as a quick follow-up question, because I really appreciate that response, especially because the first response was, I don't know. And then you listed why. I think a lot of folks are always like, well, here's what it looks like. Right. Um, I, I really appreciate that, that, that candor. Um, but as a therapist, you know that you might experience compassion fatigue. You mm -hmm. might experience burnout yourself. As you take care of other people, who's taking care of you? Um, mm -hmm. um, what does that look like? Do you have a, a maintenance routine? Do you have a check-in? Do you have an accountability partner? Do you have a circle? What does that look like for you? Listen, I was just telling my sister yesterday, I think, that I've, I've, I have a lot going on right now, right? And I feel like I'm getting everything done to the expense of my physical health. Right. So mm. am I really getting everything done? Right. No, because I'm I'm tired. I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, I I can barely get my daughter in the bath and in bed quick enough before I'm ready to hit the pillow. And I said to I said to her, I was like, I need to figure something out, like something something's off. Um, so do I have things that I build into my routine? Yes. And my my mom always makes fun of me because I always say that she calls me the boundary queen. But I think the most important thing that I have in terms of self-care that I've learned over the years is boundaries. Mm. And I am somebody who am self-diagnosed anxiety. I recognize now as an adult, I I had as a youngster. And even now, but I just manage it very, very well now. But when I learned to establish boundaries in my life, you know, to be able to say no, to be able to, you know, my circle is small. I 
the news is not allowed on in my house. I block certain accounts on social media. I do not watch any violent videos of anything happening. I protect myself as much as I can from things that I feel will trigger me. Hmm. Do I slip? Yeah. Um, but generally, a day-to-day -day thing that I do that I know can protect me from entering into a space. You know, we all know what those things are that trigger us to kind of get off of our, our even plane, right? I know if I see something about any kind of Black person being murdered by police or even some Karen situation, mm -hmm. anything with a Black child, anything, with a black child, you know, when you become a parent, y'all know when you become a parent, everything with children triggers you. Um, everything in that realm can mess up my moment. Whatever I have going on in that moment, it will completely take me out of it. So while I have to visit whatever it is, because, you know, certain things you can't ignore, I've come to realize. I can receive it when I'm ready to receive it in the way mm -hmm. that I'm ready to receive it. I don't have to take this information in the way that the media wants me to take it in. I can take it in however I choose to take it in. Um, and creating boundaries like this is a huge form of self-care for me. Now it goes beyond that. It's it's things simple, other simple things too, you know, saying I'm, you know, the boundary of. I'm not gonna pick up my phone after a certain time or mm -hmm. you know, putting those thing, that thing on my phone where the apps go dark after a certain mm -hmm. time, um, you know, things like that. So I think it's probably more of what I don't do, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, than what I do. And I incorporate the other things, yeah. Like as a one of the things I think that we don't talk about a lot for women you know, black women is when we become parents, you know, and we sometimes lose ourselves in motherhood, right? And it took me a lot of years to come back to the idea that, oh, I'm a woman too. Like, let me go back to getting my nails done and getting my hair done and put let me put on some makeup. Let me put a little cute outfit on. Um, because Oh, that that actually makes me feel better just going about my day. Nobody even has to see me. It makes me feel better when I look in the mirror, right? Um, so these types of things too, just being able to feel good about myself. There are things I want to get better at. I want to find the time to work out more. I want to eat better, you know, those typical things that are always on the list. Um, but one thing that I that I always come around to in you know working with people is the idea of boundaries in some way or another because everyone's lacking them somewhere and i feel like establishing them in some way form or fashion can typically improve you know your your overall well-being mm. beautiful thank you Absolutely. Wonderful answer. I really appreciate the way you articulated that. And Claude Diz, who's also an educator, asked, what are the cost effective ways for people to receive therapy? That's a great question. So there are free um, 
services at a lot of places. You just gotta like dig around and look for them. Now the caveat is that you know, like you don't know who's providing the services, right? <laughs> um, but you know, depending. So in the communities that I serve, you know, for anybody that is on, you know, like medical assistance insurance, it's it's often free. You can receive um, community mental health services free, and just because they're free doesn't mean the therapists are bad. I started like everybody like me started in community mental health. So it may not be somebody that's, you know, 20 years in as a clinician, but oftentimes there are a lot of good people working in community mental health. So, you know, if you are an educator and you work in, you know, the higher need areas where folks may have that insurance that is something that you can always help refer them to um and that's as simple as you know calling the number on the back of the insurance card and getting a, a list of providers um other ways for cost effective there there are a lot of therapists who if they are um dedicated to you know the cause will have some kind of sliding scale um, or even, you know, free, like a free slot, you know, once a month or whatever that they will dedicate to, you know, a, a person of a certain persuasion, um, whatever that may be. If they're an LGBTQ uh, therapist, it might be for an LGBTQ student or whatever it is. So it's, it's not easy to find necessarily, but it is out there. Absolutely. And th thank you for that. You had a question, Professor? Yeah. So as folks are looking for a therapist, or if folks are looking for a therapist, I guess it's a two-part question. Um, when folks are looking for a therapist, if they're looking for a therapist, what are some tips that you, or some, some best practices or guidelines you would say, here's how you vet, or here's how you go about finding a therapist that's the best fit for you? That's number mm -hmm. one. But then number two, in the meantime, while you're doing that, um, are there any steps that I can take as an individual um, to either prepare myself to receive what I'm about to go through or um, check in with myself and do my own maintenance prior to in between the time that I find a, a therapist? Mm -hmm. So in terms of finding a therapist, a lot of people don't realize if you go and if you have insurance, you can ask your insurance to filter out. I want a black male therapist who specializes in depression and anxiety. They're, they are categorized that way. And even if you search on like psychology.com, you, you can filter out people that way. Um, wow. I, yeah, I there are search engines. There's like a, a, a black clinician uh, network and things like that, where there are specific um, clinicians of color that you can search through. Certain cities have more than others, obviously, offered. Um, but I would say when you're in that process, before you, just like what we were talking about before, before you set out to find a therapist, you have to have a general idea. You don't have to, you know, figure out everything, but you have to have a general idea of what you want, right? Like, what am I going to therapy for? Like, I don't know. Am I depressed? Do I have family issues? 
Do I feel anxious? Um, you know, do I have an eating disorder? What if you have a general idea of what it is that you're feeling, there are people that specialize in mm. these different areas. So sometimes it could be helpful if you find someone that that works within that specialty. Now, you also have to ask yourself, is the person's race or ethnicity important to me? For some people, it's not, honestly. Um, for me, it is, but for some people, it's not. If it is important to you, then, you know, be honest with, you know, whoever is helping you, you know, navigate that search. Don't be afraid to say, I want a black woman, right? Um, because everybody, people, other people do it. People mm -hmm. don't have a problem saying, I don't want that black woman, mm -hmm. right? So you, nice. you can, um, people aren't going to be able to give you what you need if you don't tell them what you need, right? Mm. Um, and understanding that it's okay to get it wrong. You know, finding the right therapist is like getting on the right medication. Like it, it's trial and error. So you may find someone and try them out and it may not work. And that speaks to the other side of you can often ask if someone has a free consultation. Oftentimes people will give you a, a free short com consultation, you know, over the phone or over Zoom, just so you can get a feel. So when when you have that opportunity, you know, think about what your list of a couple questions might be that you might want to ask someone, um, things that are important to you. They could be you know, therapy related, they might just be random things to see how somebody reacts, right? Um, but oftentimes it, it's the feel of things. Um, I do free consultations and they often turn into longer conversations than I intend um, because my approach in, in this work is, like I've said all the time, is to show up as my authentic self. So I'm talking how I talk right now. Mm -hmm. And for those who are looking for someone like that, sometimes that's the immediate connection. Like, Dag, I feel like, I feel like I'm talking to my girlfriend, right? And it's, I want you to feel that level of comfort, but also understand that while I'm giving you that level of comfort, I'm giving you a professional level of comfort, right? I'm gonna be here mm -hmm. to guide you along this, this journey. Um, so understanding that we are in the driver's seat, when we are searching for a provider, you are in the driver's seat. You can interview that person. Um, you're going to be paying them. So, you know, you don't have to take the first thing that's thrown at you. Um, and then, you know, you were asking about what can you do in between, you know, what kind of work can you do with yourself in between? Um, and I think it's, it's because you're not going to know. It, a lot of times we when you're going into therapy, you may not have any insight as to what's really going on, and that's okay. Um, I don't have any insight half the time to what's going on with myself, right? It's it's we are very complex uh, people, but the amount of uh, resources that mm -hmm. are available to us via media right now through our phones is vast, right? So just the idea of pointing people in the direction of certain podcasts or books to read um, to just get themselves in the space 
of thinking in the way that you're going to be thinking when you're in, in therapy, mm -hmm. um, I think is a good place to start. So even like, it doesn't even have to be, a, you know, a, 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 sp a therapy specific podcast. It could be reading Charlemagne the God's book, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is, you know, a very practical take on mental health. And, and it's something that guides you through like, um, a, a black man's life experiences, but having, he has, you know, a, a, I think a psychologist or psychiatrist that gives narrations through each chapter to give, you know, this oversight on the, these experiences that he's had through his life. So things like that are, I feel like are so powerful and can be used in, in, you know, in the classrooms even to help start these conversations. And they're a place that, that don't feel so overwhelming. Like I'm not shoving it down your throat. You know, mm -hmm. thank you for that. It's very helpful. Absolutely. And I just wanted to follow up to a point you both uh, talked about in terms of uh, trauma and whatnot and, and self-care. So if I think about people like uh, in in developed nations, I feel like people in general tend to cope with things like food or alcohol or substance abuse, unfortunately. Right. However, to your brilliant point, Simone, in our community, there's an abundance of trauma, which I feel like exacerbates that need to, for those coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So are there any healthy ways to, to cope and have self-care healing strategies? And then a follow-up question for my own curiosity, and maybe other people may, may know or not, is there a difference between self-care and coping mechanisms? Because sometimes mm -hmm. they tend to intersect. Yeah. Um, so yes, there are a billion coping mechanisms, right, that yeah. are out there aside from the negative ones, which, um, I would, I would challenge us to think about it differently. So, you know, we could look at it like certain folks use alcohol or drugs or this or that as coping mechanisms, but I would dare to say they're not coping mechanisms. They're using it to cope, but it's not a coping mechanism because it's not—it's not necessarily helping them cope. It's only perpetuating another issue, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm about to get deep for no reason, but when, but when when we think about you know community issues, right? So like, well, well why why are folks coping with you know? alcohol or drugs or this or that. But when we look at the communities and we look at the what's available around them, you know, this is this is what's there and readily available, you know, in the neighborhood that why is there a liquor store and a, mm -hmm. a copy store, a liquor mm -hmm. store, a tax place, a this and that. Like there's there's not like a little mental health clinic in between. There might be one that's selling pills, but there's not the 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 resources that might be helpful are not necessarily readily available for people. Mm. So the availability for certain people to have access to learn about what a healthy coping skill is and to reinforce that is not necessarily something that is systematically 
you know, provided, right, for certain communities. Now, again, the idea that we are not a monolith, there are, there's the family system that exists within every environment and every family system's different. There are families that have great coping, coping skills, right? There are families that pass down, um, you know, healthy ways of living and coping to their children and grandchildren. So, you know, they grow up with these things. They grow up with knowing how to navigate the neighborhood that they live in and how to stay away from certain things and, you know, circumvent other things. And um, they're, it, that all just depends on the luck of the draw, where you fall or, you know, what knowledge do your parents have that they were able to pass down on you, you know? Or it might just be a matter of you got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time and now you're involved in, you know, something you shouldn't be involved in. Mm. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing. I, I feel like, um, I don't know. It it makes me sad when I think about it, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it always takes mm -hmm. me back to like thinking about certain kids and you know, you know, working in education. There's certain kids that I've had that like fall into that. I'm thinking about a kid in particular now that like falls into that um category of like that kid that if he had just had an outlet, like a different outlet or you know, uh, like one other support system, because when he came to school, you know, he was a kid who was out doing all the stuff he shouldn't do when he wasn't in school. And it took me like three years to convince him to even come into my office to sit and talk. And let me tell you, when he did, this, this was a 17 year old boy who sold drugs, had guns, all this stuff out there. Allegedly. He would, allegedly. He would, he would cry like a baby, let me tell you, because it was the one space that I was able to create for him where he was able to be vulnerable. Because as a young Black boy out in this world, you're not given that grace. You're not given that space to be that. It's not safe for you to be vulnerable out mm -hmm. here. So, you know, but I, I, I often felt like power, even though I knew it was helpful for him this little bit of time we would have, ultimately, I can't save him in, in this office, right? There, there needs to be so much more available, you know, within his community, within his family system to be able to build him up. Um, you know, I can't I can't be there all the time for him to call when things are happening outside of that school day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to think about this idea of, you know, what could help build up, you know, our communities, it it goes so much. It goes back to that conversation that we were talking about before, you know, systemically about from the top, the dollars that come from the top and figuring out how to allocate this money to programs and and to people that are well-intentioned and you know really putting in the the time and effort to figure out what works 
and not just, you know, throwing money behind things that look good or, you know, is a good sound bite um, or might you might be able to get, you know, a certain celeb to come out and do this or that. But at the end, you know, a, a year later, it's fizzled out. And, and what's the show for it? You know, we need to be able to to change our community on the various levels, right? Systemically, you know, within the neighborhood, within the family system, and individually, you know, one on one. Absolutely, and thank you for going deep. By the way, we definitely needed that. And <laughs> yes. then Chloe had another question before you go, Professor. Is it best to seek therapy as maintenance rather than a rock bottom? Um, I wouldn't say best. I would say that the it's better to I think nowadays the conversation about you nothing has to be wrong to start therapy, right? Mm. A lot of people will say there's nothing wrong with me. Like why would I go to therapy? Mm-hmm. Um and that's the misconception about therapy. Like there doesn't have you don't have to be at rock bottom to go to therapy. You can be at rock bottom and that might be you know what catapults you to to go which is fine whatever what you know whatever works whatever works whatever gets you there um so you know you look at it as you know is it a crisis moment or is it something that you're looking for you know maybe as prevention from getting to a crisis moment right mm. we're, we're all we're all only a couple little triggers away from from that moment mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so I, I don't think it's like better or worse but i think it's it's great for us to continue this conversation in the narrative of therapy being more of a maintenance thing than something that we need to seek out when something's wrong mm, I, I, I truly truly appreciate that response and before i um ask a question uh which i guess then afterwards you could transition to talking about your business and all the great work that Mm -hmm. you do um but first when you just said you know nothing has to be wrong in order for you to seek therapy it reminds me of uh, when i told my friends i was going to boarding school they were like what did you do (laughs) right why is your folks sending you away to boarding school but it's like nah it's because you don't understand it you don't yeah. understand the benefit of it. And that decision really changed my life and catapulted me to where I am now. So think about mm-hmm. therapy in that same vein. Um, that's just an, a, a huge point for people to take away. It's like nothing needs to, you know, nothing needs to be wrong with you. Mm-hmm. In order for you to ask a question, but it's also a question that other people can benefit from. Um, mm-hmm. Being a new father, being a new parent, um, Congratulations. A beautiful, thank you, thank you to a beautiful <laughs> black uh, daughter. Um, one of the questions that I often wrestle with in the work that I do, and now it's going to be one that I wrestle with as a parent. Um, how do you deal with the tension between, which I I call uh, the tension between uh, protection and projection, in the sense of you want to protect your child from the reality of the world and at the same time, you don't want to project too much on them to the point where they're not able to experience the world their own way, realize that there are opportunities for liberation, et cetera, um, or for you to be free in who you are 
but then the world is going to receive you and experience you and stifle you and barricade you in one way, shape, or form because of who you are. How, mm-hmm. how do you find that tension as a parent, as a person? Um, I know you're going through it in the sense of, you know, you're, 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 you're doing that thing. So I'm, I'm asking for a friend. How do you do that? Um, mm-hmm. And if you can speak to that in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So I'm loving this journey of having this uh, little black, um, curious and, you know, extroverted child of mine. I am intentionally um, allowing her to and encouraging her to be very curious. I I let her lead when it comes to conversations. If she, and there have been times where she happens to catch a glimpse of something on TV or, you know, there are certain times where the kids are going to hear or see about something or even in school, you know, they bring, they bring up certain things, mm-hmm. even at, she's in first grade, even at her age, they find ways to incorporate things into conversations. And you know, I allow her to ask questions she wants to ask. And I've learned how to answer them in a way, just like you said, that kind of is enough to give her the the reality of it. Because I don't, what I don't ever do, and I don't ever want to do is give her misinformation. So I'm never going to completely downplay the reality of something. So, you know, when George Floyd happened, you know, mommy, they, you know, the policeman killed that man, like they did. And sometimes people treat black people bad just because they don't like the way that they look. And, you know, then we had a conversation about, you know, slavery, and you know a general conversation not going into all the details the gory details of it but just this general discussion um and being able to make uh real life comparisons for her to understand you know when me mom and pop pop were little they weren't even allowed to drink out of the same water fountain like what are you serious mommy yeah like let me show you this book right so we have a lot of books and there are a lot of great black books for young black kids that will do this for you really and will be able to open the conversation for you to have that those conversations in ways that make sense depending Mm -hmm. on the age of your child um but i really try to meet again meet her where she's at if if the other day she my kid goes to sch a private school and she started karate and she came home and she was like, mom, I was the only girl in the class. And I was like, oh, really? She's like, yeah, but I was the best one. And she's like, and guess what? I was the only black person. (laughs) And I was like, and I was like, for real? And, you know, in that moment, it was, it it just struck me because I'm like, okay, these are her experiences that she's starting to have where she's starting to really notice, you know, when I'm the only one, right? And I'm, and I'm, you think in that moment, all right, do I, oh, does, does this need to be a conversation or is this just, and you kind of feel it out. In that moment, I was like, for real? How was that for you? And she was like, it was fine. Okay. <laughs> and if that, if that 
is the energy she's put towards mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to make it a thing, right? Because there's going to be plenty of other opportunities mm-hmm. where maybe she doesn't feel that way, where we can then have a different kind of a conversation. Um, but she very much understands what mommy's business is. And she had a little thing at school where they had to write about their parents. And she knows she does mental health for Black people. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love that she is not shy about her Blackness. And mm-hmm. my mom works for, you know, my mom works to help Black people specifically. And, you know, that this is something I'm raising her to be very proud about who she is, about her hair. You know, that's a thing that you're going to have to deal with. We went through the hair thing of, you know, well, I want, she has very, she has beautiful curly hair. I want my hair straight and long like Elsa. And it is challenging as a black mom to not Mm. be like, damn Elsa hair like but (laughs) like that's what I want to say right but I have to understand this is not about me like Mm -hmm. I have to allow her to be a child right and she doesn't want Elsa hair because she hates being black and she just was she just wants what she sees around her Mm -hmm. I know there's this deeper Eurocentric you know Mm -hmm. thing going on that I'm trying to like make sure doesn't get ingrained in her but there is walking that line of allowing your child to be a child. And I think rather than telling them what they can't do, I focus more on building up who we are. So she sees me with all different kind of natural hairstyles and I have a dope black therapist sweatshirt on and we have a lot of, you know, pro black, whatever conversation happening. And I think a lot of times as parents, we don't give our kids enough credit that they can engage in certain kinds of conversations when they really can. So I've been cognizant to allow for those kind of conversations to happen. Everybody that knows my daughter knows that she is well beyond her years. So I really haven't had a choice but to. But, you know, we even when we talk about mental health, sometimes we forget the conversation of the little kids. Like Mm -hmm. we are not the only people experiencing the woes of the world. Our, you know, our four or five, six year olds are seeing the same things on a different level. So it's our job too, to create the spaces for them to be able to express themselves in whatever way that manifests itself, you know? Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. So many gems. Absolutely. Dropping bombs over here. <laughs> I feel like I'm on the breakfast club. <laughs> so if you don't mind, Simone, could you talk to us about Golden TLC, the Therapeutic Life Coaching? Yes. So Golden TLC is evolving, right? So I launched it February of 2020, a month before the pandemic hit, right? And I had all these plans. Um, And initially, it was going to be mental health coaching, you know, one-on-one, virtual or, you know, in person, doing like groups, doing some of the work that I did with you, Mikael. Um, But over the last, so I've been doing that the past couple of years. 
and it's all been virtual. So I have clients that live all over everywhere um, of all ages, from teens to older adults. And I have, uh, over the last couple of years, realized that in order to enact the type of change that I want in the on the higher levels, you know, systemically, I have to get more into doing professional development and trainings, which I've done in my role, you know, at the company I work for. Um, but I've been spending a lot of time developing these trainings that are specific to the black and brown community. So things like trauma-informed classrooms for, you know, educators working with black and brown students, mm -hmm. right? Um, how to navigate predominantly white institutions and spaces. So this is one I'm really, really excited about. So I'm developing this training because I feel like there is a um, life tool, right, that exists in understanding how to navigate predominantly white spaces, whether mm -hmm. it's an institution or whatever, right? Because there's tons of them. Um, and so often, perfect example, shout out to my girlfriend, Tayana. My first college roommate in undergrad in 2000, Tayana, she still to this day, 20 years later, calls me her white black girlfriend, right? <laughs> me and Tayana come from very different sides of the tracks, right? Mm. And when we came into college, I was one of the few black kids that didn't come in the summer program. So when I came in, everybody already knew everybody because they were there in the summer program. And I was like, they called me a regular admit. And I'm like, dag. So I realized when I got, Tiana was my first roommate, you know, there was just a lot of things that I had the privilege of learning because of the education I was provided that she may not necessarily have had. And we were able, there was so much we were able to teach each other, right? Mm -hmm. You know, me on the academic side of things, but her on like just the life side of things. Um, and there, there was something that was missing for this subset of students that you are, and the same thing exists with, with athletes, with black professional athletes, right? When you just cherry pick people out of a certain environment and plop them into this predominantly white environment that has these expect behavioral expectations, there's gonna be a disconnect. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that really exists other than, you know, your parents and loved ones to prepare you for that transition. And I feel like um, this training that I'm develop this training that I'm developing is geared towards being able to provide students, not and not even just students, you know, it could be adults that are, you know, entering into, you know, a, a 
a white workforce for the mm -hmm. first time ever, right? There might be people that worked around black people their whole lives and now they got this opportunity, but there might be cultural things that are very different that that are might make or break their success in that new setting. So there, there are conversations that need to be had with our folks about how that transition can be more successful for them. And that's not to say anything is wrong with us because there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with us, but we have to understand that the reality of the world that we live in is that we have to understand that in order to get to where we want to be, there are ways that we have to navigate for our voices to be heard, right? And that's just that's just the reality of it. Mm -hmm. um, and we wish it wasn't like that. And I wish I didn't even have to develop any kind of training like that. Mm -hmm. But it's something as simple as, you know, if if you're in a classroom with a professor and there's something that you might disagree about or you don't know how to approach a certain subject, you know, a professor is is they're not going to hear you if you can't approach them correctly. All they're going to hear is what they see, right? And they see all the stereotypes, right? And giving us the tools to be able to take a step back for a second before we react or 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 move before we make a move to be able because there's so many things that we're coming with there's so much baggage that we're bringing to us in certain situations and coming from a certain environment into a predominantly white situation josh what you were saying about all those microaggressions a lot of times these kids aren't prepared for that they're not prepared for the onslaught of microaggressions and blatant discrimination that they're mm -hmm. about to face. Mm -hmm. And if we don't give them these tools, a lot of times they're going to go in and and the opportunity is going to be gone. So rather than rather than putting them into these situations with with un completely unprepared we need to at least explain to them, you know, what's coming, right? And give them some some tools, some coping strategies on how how do I how do I navigate this? How do I move through this? Because this is this is your first step into the real world. There are people who stay in their in their spaces their whole lives, yeah. But I'm going to venture to say if you're somebody who's going to college, maybe you might want to expand your horizons you might you know you might have have different ideas for yourself of things that you want to do and the world exists outside of of our bubble we have to know how to how to work with and and you know be in a class with have a discussion with mm -hmm. um be friends with you know be placed mm -hmm. in a in a work group with people that don't look like us, um, you know, with, without, without allowing some of the things that some of our traumas, right, to manifest themselves every time we're triggered because that, that, that triggering is going to happen a lot. So some of the work that I'm doing, and I'm also in, in your lane, Mikhail, I'm, I'm finishing this 
Cornell diversity and inclusion certification right now. And it actually, when I first started it, I wasn't sure. Like, you know, sometimes you do things and it's like, I already mm -hmm. knew all this. This is like mm -hmm. basic information. But I have to say, stepping into that space, um, coming from a clinical perspective, it actually has been very informative. Just even, you know, being able to define inclusion differently and really mm -hmm. understanding, you know, what that include, you know, inclusion is an act, you know, we, you have to be actively uh, inclusive of, of people and being able to assess how people, if people are feeling included mm -hmm. and just because people have all these, you know, diversity and inclusion initiatives, none of it matters if the people that it is supposed to be affecting don't feel the effects of it. Mm -hmm. um, so um, in the process of really trying to incorporate the idea of men, because there's so many connections between, you know, diversity and inclusion and mental health in the black community. Um, so I'm in the process of developing all these trainings for the purpose of being able to offer them to everyone that I feel like could benefit from them. And the, the, what sets my trainings apart, I feel are like, like you experienced in the groups that I did with you, Mikael, I don't want people that come to my trainings to feel like you sat through a training. My trainings mm -hmm. are going to be immersive and engaging. You have to participate in this training. And, you know, I feel like there are so many trainings that people are mandated to do for work these days, whether they're computerized or this or that. And, you know, it's the last thing on your mind that you feel like doing. And it's so standardized and it's usually information that you've heard before somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like the trainings that you always remember are the ones where you really are made to be maybe a little uncomfortable, you know? Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations. And I'm somebody who's willing to facilitate those kind of uncomfortable conversations. Um, so I'm really trying to create this lane where I can get in with providers who are willing to say, yes, we need to shake it up a little bit. We need to have some uncomfortable conversations to be able to get to a better space. I want to be able to provide this type of support to my staff or to my students or to whoever. Um, and it's it's I like to rely on my charm to be able to get in the door because mm -hmm. a lot of people are are going to be afraid to introduce this kind of stuff right into um, you know, their agencies or their schools or wherever, because it, you know, they might feel like, eh, I don't know, you know, this could go left. Um, but one of the things that I pride myself on that I was talking about earlier is this idea of really understanding my audience, right? And being able to create a safe space, the same way that I would do in a room with one client, you know, I have to be able to do with an audience of however many people are in this, this training because people are not going to be willing to engage and participate if they don't feel safe within this space. So I'm really excited um, for this transition from my full-time, you know, corporate work 
into just being able to focus full time on my business and, you know, making these connections with people and, you know, trying to trying to move spaces for for black and brown people um, to healthier places because we deserve it. Um, and to be able to shift, help start to shift, even if I can shift the mindsets of other folks a little bit into understanding, you know, our side of things, then, you know, I'm happy because there's some, you're not going to change everybody's mind. There are some folks who are set, dead set in the way that they think, and they're never going to change their mind. Mm -hmm. And that's not who I'm talking to. That's not my target audience. I'm coming in talking to the people who have a little bit of flexibility or a lot of flexibility. You might consider yourself an ally or you might consider yourself, eh, I don't know, but I'm willing to listen. Those are the folks that I'm talking to. So, you know, I'm here to work with and advocate for our community. That's wonderful. That's brilliant. And um, we definitely want to be a part of your growth. We want to support you in that. Um, so for folks out there listening and watching, please like and subscribe. Um, please share this video. Um, and how can folks follow you and connect with you? Where, where can they contact you? So I am, I have a website. Um, it's goldentlc.com. Um, I'm in the process of kind of updating all that, but all my information's on there. I have an Instagram. It's golden underscore TLC. I just started, I'm getting on the YouTube thing. I just started a YouTube page. So there's a couple okay. little things on there, um, but go, everything's golden TLC. Um, but everything, you can find me and my email and everything through the website, which is goldentlc.com. Wow. Absolutely. And just a heads up, all that is in the description below. So if you just check out the links there, you can find Simone. Thank you. And I also wanted to add, and I appreciate you not only giving us an abundance and value of, you know, diversity, and especially in mental health, but also as a black entrepreneur, because mm -hmm. I feel like in our community, we have so much talent that is underutilized yeah. and potential that's never actualized for a plethora of reasons that I'm sure we can get to in a different conversation. But the simple fact that you took the action and you, you know, because a lot of us, we get into, you know, uh, analysis by paralysis. We mm -hmm. stay in our comfort zone. We have imposter yeah. syndrome, as Dr. Ashley Oliver would talk mm -hmm. about. And Been sometimes there. you just need to dive in and take action. And then you learn on the fly. And mm -hmm. then you get closer to your mission and purpose. So I appreciate you taking that plunge and getting closer as well. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm, I have all those things you just described all have applied to me and there's still some some fear in it right in in stepping into this complete world of entrepreneur i'm a parent right it's not just about me if it was just me it'd be like <laughs> eh, but mm -hmm. i got a whole human to take care of but i'm i'm so confident in my ability like i the imposter syndrome existed trust me before but it's gone and now that it's gone I'm so confident in my ability to do what I do that I'm I'm good. I'm Gucci. That's awesome. Well, <laughs> that's on your mind, heart, spirit. You just got to get it out. Holler at us. Say that again. Sorry, I missed it. 
words. I said, um, I said, don't be a stranger. I said, if it's ever anything that's in your heart, mind, body, spirit that you just want to get out, we're here. So just holler at us. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate this time. This was a, a good conversation. I appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Thank and thank you for joining us. And close says, check out the WCEC. I think that's a I think that's one of those courses where it teaches uh, women how to be. Oh, yeah. Sorry. There we go. It's a uh, great resources for black entrepreneurs. OK, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm going to check it out. Absolutely. So thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Mrs. Yizzy, Dr. Yizzy in the building. Thank you, Simone, for joining us. And thank you, thank you. Professor Israel. And I'll talk to you guys soon. You repeat what they created and get power to hate. But worst of all, we disappoint all the greats. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah. Black lives matter. Black lives matter.